Well, one thing is, is clear that I noted last week. If you take a stand for Christ, for the gospel, as Paul expounded in verses 27 to 28a, if you stand fast for the gospel, if you strive together for the gospel, if you're fearless for the gospel, you will suffer persecution. You can't get around that. If you stand for Christ, you will suffer persecution. And Paul makes this unmistakably clear. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, he said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now persecution, brothers and sisters, is a reality for many in the world today. Um, it, It is estimated, according to one list, that 215 million Christians today are being significantly persecuted for their faith. 215 million Christians are being significantly persecuted. It's estimated that 1 in 12 Christians live in places where the religion is either illegal, forbidden, or they are punished for being Christian. In 2017 alone, 90,000 Christians were martyred. In just 2017. Now the main source of religious persecution, as far as Christians are concerned, is Islamic extremism. That's the main source. It has been reported that every day, six women, every day, are sexually abused, harassed, or forced into marriage to a Muslim under threat of death due to their Christian faith. Every day, six women. Before you lay your head down on your pillow tonight to sleep, six women will have been sexually harassed, abused because of their faith in an Islamic extremist culture. In Pakistan, Christians today sit on death row facing charges of blasphemy against Allah. It is stated by the U.S. Department of the nation of Iran that there is systemic, ongoing, and egregious violations of religious freedom against Christians. I had a friend who was from Iran and I one time had him over for dinner. This was in Greenville, South Carolina. And he asked me one evening, how did you come to know Christ? Because as a Muslim, I'm born a Muslim. I don't decide to become a Muslim. How did you come to decide to become a Christian? And when I explained it to him, he said to me, if I become a Christian, Peter, I have to be one in my mind only. Because if I go home to Iran, I will die as a Christian. Persecution is a serious threat to Christians today. In Afghanistan, Christians are actually put into insane asylums for their faith in Christ. The worst place in the world, though, is North Korea. In North Korea, there are perhaps 60,000 Christians in labor camps. And these labor camps are absolutely incredible. If you don't worship the leader, you're put into a labor camp. There is an amazing story, though, of one man named Min Su. Min Su was a Korean. 
he was not a Christian. He was put into one of these labor camps. In the labor camp, he described there being no light in the cell, no heat in the cell. You're only given a handful of corn to eat. And every day the guards would tell him over and over, you are not human. You are not human. You have been abandoned. We will bury you. You are not a human. The amazing thing was while Min Su was in prison, he remembered, I don't know how he heard, but he remembered stories about the Apostle Paul in prison. It's a true story. And he asked himself, how is it that the Apostle Paul could have rejoiced in a situation like this? And in his own words, he said, what is giving him so much pleasure that he is telling people to rejoice like he's rejoicing in prison? And this actually led this man, Minsu, to cry out in a North Korean labor camp for God to show him this joy that Paul had. The amazing story is this. Minsu actually escaped from this labor camp. He was found by a number of Christians, or he found some Christians. He memorized 8,000 verses, I believe it was, of, of the scriptures. He spent eight hours a day pouring over the word of God. And he came to faith in Christ. And he found his joy, which was Jesus. Christ himself. And to this day, Minsu will tell you that he could rejoice in prison because he found the source of Paul's joy, which was Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, they were also facing persecution. Physical persecution. This was a serious thing. Now, we don't feel that as much being Americans, but we have to put ourselves in the context of the church at Philippi. They were facing serious persecution. And Paul knew persecution is a very scary thing. And many times throughout history, Christians sometimes, I should say, have either compromised the gospel or totally forsaken the gospel because of religious persecution. And so what Paul does in the remainder of this chapter, verses 28 through 30, is he seeks to teach them something very important. Persecution is a blessed thing. He really says the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. Now, persecution, of course, is not to be desired for anything in and of itself. But it is to be, it is to be something in our eyes that is blessed because of God's gracious purposes in it. Because it enables us to know Christ and make Him known. Persecution is blessed and blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the Apostle Paul said. Now, we might say this morning, well, I can see how this would be relevant for the church at Philippi. I would understand how this would be relevant for people in Islamic countries. I would understand this would be relevant for North Korea. But how is this relevant for us as Americans? Well, I would submit to you that as our religious freedoms are being eroded more and more, the cultural landscape of the United States of America is looking more and more unsafe for 
Christians. Now, there is not an outright attack as far as a physical persecution that would be experienced in these other countries. But there is definitely much discrimination. And that is a form of persecution. Just take, for example, the Colorado baker not too long ago who was brought up for charges for refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. That case went all the way to the Supreme Court. If that would have gone through, he would have been fined for a criminal offense. Now, thankfully, it did not. But doesn't that give us a little bit of an understanding into the situation of our country? Where something like that could go so far as going all the way to the Supreme Court. You look at the laws being passed. And you can see the trajectory. You can see the path that is being worn in even this land. They say that whenever there is a massive moral change in any, in any culture... First of all, that moral change, that massive moral change is accepted and celebrated and then all of those who oppose must be squelched. To make that moral change real and final and throughout the nation or a culture, not only is something celebrated and accepted, but often the opposing view is put down. Now, I am not trying to um, be an alarmist. I don't know what will happen. Only God knows. Um, We thank the Lord for the situation that we have today. We're able to meet together. We're able to peacefully worship God. But, but, there are forms of persecution even now. If you've worked anywhere for any length of time, you know that your workplace doesn't want you to bring Jesus Christ into every aspect of your work. You know that very well. You may suffer not being promoted because you want to do things ethically because you're a Christian. It's a form of persecution. You may suffer situations in your family. Perhaps you become a Christian and your family's not, and you've suffered persecution from your own family. That's a form as well. I think this is very relevant to us. Very relevant. Because we feel the pressure today to conform to the culture. We feel the pressure to compromise. We feel how the culture is staring us down and saying, you are not wanted here. So I think this is extremely relevant for the church even today. And I'm afraid that much of evangelicalism is not prepared to deal with persecution. If it came to that, if persecution actually became a more widespread thing in our nation if it was more severe. I don't know if evangelical churches, by and large, would be able to handle that. And there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, we have a religion of positivity and prosperity. And so when you lose your prospering, when things aren't positive, what will people do? If Jesus is simply a means to the end of positive thinking and a means to the end of prosperity, then what will happen when they lose their prosperity? Also, this religion many times today, Christians, Christianity, by and large, is a religion that does not require any self-denial. Repentance is not required as, um, as, 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 as a means of, of receiving Christ. It's simply believe, a, a, a repentantless belief. And so there are 
millions, perhaps, of people across this nation that don't think Christianity requiring any kind of self-denial. And so when you have to deny yourself facing some kind of persecution in some form, just like the story of the seed that was thrown and the cares of the world choked up some and the sun destroyed some and some were eaten by the ravens, the same will happen. And also there is a shallow, sometimes, many times, a shallow teaching of the doctrine of suffering. People have no understanding of what the Bible teaches. So I'm afraid that much of evangelicalism is not prepared to deal with suffering and persecution. Now, some is. Some are, excuse me. But I'm afraid much are not. So we need to hear heed Paul's words. Blessed are the persecuted. We need to hear what Paul says about the blessedness of persecution. First place from these verses. Paul says that persecution is a proof. Persecution is a proof. Look with me at verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries... Then you have a, it's really a statement that could be in parenthesis. Which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. He's talking about persecution. It is an evident token. An evident token. Now, what is an evident token? The Greek word translated evident token is simply the word for proof. It's translated proof in 2 Corinthians 8.24. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love. That's the same word. A proof is that degree of evidence, as the dictionary would describe, which convinces the mind of the certainty of truth. It is that degree of evidence which convinces the mind of the certainty of truth. So Paul says persecution is an evidence It's a proof. A proof of what? Well, in the first place, it is a proof to the persecutor of their perdition. Paul says, which is to them an evident token of perdition. What is perdition? The word perdition is the word for final and eternal destruction under the wrath of God. In 2 Peter 3.7, it is used... To describe this, but the heavens and earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In Matthew seven thirteen, this word is translated destruction. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. It's talking about eternal destruction in hell, final judgment, eternal wrath in hell from a holy God. And Paul says. The activity of the persecutor is a proof of their perdition. What he is saying is that a proof of their God-hating heart is the way that they treat other Christians. Now, we don't know if every persecutor will, will eventually be saved or they will not be saved. But as it stands, where they are, as they're persecuting, it is a proof and evidence that their heart is wicked and hates the living God and that they will one day face the judgment of a thrice holy God. It's a token. It's an evidence. It's a proof. I heard a story of a young boy in Afghanistan who was beaten and murdered by another student in his school because he was a Christian. 
we need to understand that that act is a proof of their facing eternal wrath and eternal judgment. And what does this have to do with preparing us for persecution? Well, in the first place, it rescues us from intimidation and fear. When you look at your persecutor and you understand this individual is going to stand before the living God and he will be damned with the fierce wrath of a holy God, it might help you with some fear and intimidation in dealing with that persecutor. Because the fear of God, the fear of the greater, dispels the fear of the lesser. When you stand in the fear of a holy God, as one man said, intimacy with God cannot coexist with intimidation with men. When you know God and you understand this persecutor is going to stand before a holy God, then I don't need to fear this persecutor. Secondly, it rescues us from bitterness. You think about the people that are persecuting. It's a token of their eternal damnation. Pity them. Pity them. Don't hate them. Pity them. Jesus said when men persecute you, you're to love them, you're to bless them. Pity them. This individual is blind and lost and they're on the road to hell. Pity that poor soul. Pray for that soul. Don't hate them. Don't despise them. Don't be bitter with them. This also rescues us from a vengeful heart. The Word of God says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. You don't need to repay. Somebody's treated you wrongfully for Christ's sake. You don't need to repay them. You leave it with God. When you understand that this persecutor is going to one day stand before God in judgment, you don't need to raise your finger to exact vengeance. You don't need to punish them. Now, of course, I understand that if it's in a court of law, yes, and etc. But I'm talking about a Christian who's being persecuted, having a vengeful, bitter heart, can't wait to just pay back that person for what they've done. That's not the heart of a Christian. It's not the heart of a Christian at all. Secondly, the Apostle Paul says, it is a proof to the persecuted of their salvation. Not only a proof to the persecutor of their perdition, a proof to the persecuted of their salvation. So then Paul goes on to say, an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. To you of salvation and that of God. God Himself has given you a token, an evidence, a proof, a sign that you are indeed a child of God and that sign is persecution. That's a sign that you are a child of God. Now, this needs a little bit of qualification. Remember, this is persecution. Always keep in mind, for Christ's sake. There are people that say, I'm being persecuted. But is it for Christ's sake? Is it really for Christ's sake? That's what Paul's referring to. And then also, it's referring to somebody who holds to Christ in the midst of the persecution. When somebody is persecuted for their faith and they hold to Christ in the midst of that persecution, that is a proof to them that they are indeed a child of God. 
Remember our definition of a proof. It's an evidence that should work to convince the mind of the truth which it proves. So this persecution and standing underneath it should convince us, should be a proof to us, that we are indeed the children of God. Because we are in Christ, we are in union with Christ, we are going to suffer with our head. If our head suffered, the body will suffer. If Christ was hated by men, He had no honor in His own country. Jesus said again, if they don't honor your master, how do you think they'll honor you? If you are pressed into the image of the Son of God, if God is working in you to be made more and more like Christ, why did men hate Christ? They hated Christ because Christ was the image of God. And they hate God because God is pure and holy and righteous. And if we are conformed to the image of Christ, the ungodly world will not love us. Jesus makes that clear. That's why He says in the world, you will have tribulation. Be prepared for it. Expect it. You're going to have persecution because you're pressed into My image. But when you're persecuted for My sake, rejoice for great is your reward in heaven. Because when you're persecuted, it's an evidence. I'm being hated and persecuted because I look like Jesus. Because I am in Jesus. Because He is in me. And I know that only God and His great grace and power can hold me up under this persecution. And so when I come through it, and even in the midst of it, you think of the Muslim who is, who is persecuting someone and they are suffering. And you ask the question, why do they have many times so much greater joy than us in the midst of persecution? Because there is such a convincing, such a, um, a signifying of their salvation, such an assurance being given as Christ comes and whispers to them in the midst of the persecution, you are mine. He is, he is sweetly sealing their salvation with the imprimatur of his own hand when he says, you are, when, he, when he allows the believer to be persecuted and upholds them and comes alongside them. And their assurance is exploding underneath persecution. It is a sign, is it evidence of saving faith and of true religion. That's why persecution is blessed. While we're persecuted, we are made even more sure of our salvation. In the second place, Paul makes the point that persecution is a gift. He says in verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now he goes on to say, Having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me, saying, I am also being persecuted because I am also in Christ and I have also been given this gift of persecution because I am in Christ. That's his logic. It is a gift. What does he mean by gift? The word translated given is from a word which comes from the word for grace. This is a word for grace, so a grace gift. A grace gift. An unconditional gift. Paul's language is extremely important in this verse, so I want you to watch it carefully. 
given in the behalf of Christ. In the behalf of Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? It is a gift given for the sake, in the behalf of Christ. So what that tells us is that this gift was purchased by another. It was purchased by Jesus. It was purchased by the work of Christ. Every single spiritual blessing that we receive has been purchased by the work of Christ. Christ, understand, Christ not only purchased, not only purchased by His work, salvation from the penalty of sin in hell, but He also purchased salvation from the power and presence of sin. He not only purchased your justification, He purchased your sanctification. Because He purchased you. He purchased the church. Not just salvation. He purchased the church. He has perfected forever them that are sanctified through His work. So not only is your justification secure, but your sanctification is secure. Because He has purchased all blessings that the church needs to finally and fully and freely be saved. So, as one man said, the work of Christ for you is the grounds of the work of Christ in you. The work of, the work of Christ for you is the grounds of the work of Christ in you. And so, on the behalf of Christ brings our minds to the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary as He fulfilled the obligations of the covenant and as He was exalted in glory, given gifts by His Father. He bestows these blessings. He has purchased all the covenant blessings for His people and now He pours them out richly upon them because He has fully done everything that is necessary to reward those things for His people. To purchase those things for His people. And there are two gifts that are spoken of here. Faith and suffering. This is an amazing little text. First, faith. It is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him. Is faith a gift of God? Is belief a gift of God? Is belief something that is, as we've said before, up completely to the human being to conjure up in their own soul? Or is saving faith a gift of God? Well, this text is incontrovertible. It is unmistakably clear that faith, belief, saving faith, is a gift of God. And remember, we must go back to the statement of given in the behalf of Christ. Christ's work purchased belief for the church. It is given. It is a grace gift. Faith is given. Belief is given. It's not conjured up. It's given by God. It's a gift on the behalf or in the behalf of Christ. So Christ has purchased by His work saving faith. Which means this, Christ did not just simply do a work that makes salvation possible and that 
purchases something that is merely available, but then he says to man, it is completely now up to you. I have nothing to do with your faith. But faith itself is purchased because Christ purchased his church. He purchased them fully and all that was necessary for their salvation. Not only the salvation itself in the sense of pardon, justification, but even that thing that receives that pardon. Faith itself. And that is why salvation is all of grace. Because even the hand that reaches up to receive salvation is a gift. A gift given as a result of the work of the Son of God. Jesus purchased all that was necessary for His church to come to Him. He purchased His church. Not one for whom He has died will be lost. He's purchased everything necessary. Belief, belief is given in the behalf of Christ to believe on Him. Now, I will say this as well. That does not mean that Christ believes for me. That does not mean that Christ believes for me. That does not mean that I do not make a decision when I come to Christ. I do not make any action in my will. That I simply believe because it's as if Christ does the believing for me. That's not the case. Christ has purchased a new heart, a heart of flesh. When that heart of flesh, when I'm born again, I'm given a heart of flesh. When that heart of flesh hears the gospel, it will respond in saving faith. But I must respond. So I must choose to trust in Christ. I am not, at the moment when the gospel is being preached, I am not conscious, the sinner is not conscious that they've been born again. All they know is I need Jesus. And they are to be told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we understand everything, we step back and we say, yes, but even that believing and that that new heart, it was given because of the work of Christ. All of it. The second gift is suffering for His sake. Isn't that an interesting little statement? Suffering is given on the behalf of Christ. Suffering then is a gift. Now, persecution is a particular kind of suffering. But may I ask the question, will God, who is a good father, give an evil gift to his child? All forms of suffering are a gift. Now again, they're not a gift in and, of what, in and of themselves. God takes no pleasure in the pain that a child of God goes through when they have something like, like cancer or they go through a difficult time. But God does say, this has been permitted and it is a gift. This is a gift from God. Now, suffering, like I said before, is a part of the salvation package. You cannot get Christ without get suffering getting suffering because Christ is a suffering Savior and we are pressed into the mold and form of a suffering Savior and a cross-shaped life. We are to take up our cross and to deny ourselves and to follow Him. Follow Him 
as He walks to the cross. And so we are not to be surprised when we suffer, even persecution. But how is persecution a gift? How is it a gift? Well, in closing, I just want to go back over Philippians chapter 1 and note to you five things that we learned as we went through it. Just to remind us again, why is persecution? And really, you can think of all forms of suffering here. Why is suffering a gift? Why is it a gift? Number one, it draws us into closer communion with Christ. Remember, we spoke about that. In Philippians 1, verse 8, Paul says, God is my record how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And you see there his intimate communion with Christ so much that he is saying, I love you in the very pity and bowels of Jesus. So close was he to Christ. And it's no coincidence that that intimacy was had by Paul in the midst of persecution. And that's what another thing he said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings. Persecution is a gift. I quoted to you before the great Scottish theologian who said that all of my prison, it flashed like a ruby because Jesus was there. Because Jesus was there. Samuel Rutherford. It draws us into closer communion with Christ. There, there, is, there are very few times in life when you will be closer and nearer to Jesus than in the midst of persecution. And that's why, my friends, so many believers that you will go see in other countries who are struggling, who don't have a lot, are filled with great joy. Because Christ is so near and so dear to them. Secondly, we saw that it advances the gospel through us. Philippians 1, 12 and 13, Paul made that clear. He says, these things have happened under the furtherance of the gospel. Persecution. Tertullian, the church father, said that the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. When the martyrs die, the church grows. They say that in the Middle East, that the only way that the church is going to really grow there is if blood is shed. Because they know that when blood is shed, when Christians die, it sets a fire, a blaze in that place. It is unstoppable. Persecution has been throughout history one of the greatest means by which God has grown and advanced His gospel and His church. You think about it, it's just like pruning a tree. Some, you, the more you prune, the more they grow. It's like refining a piece of pottery or something. And the more you burn it, the stronger it gets. And this is God's great purpose in persecution. Third, it will embolden the brethren by us. Remember Paul said, My bonds are made manifest in Christ, and now the brothers are bold now. They're not afraid now to preach the gospel. Why? Because they see how God is keeping me faithful to Him in the midst of persecution. And when people see believers holding to Jesus in the midst of fierce persecution, they will be emboldened, emblazoned to preach the riches of Christ wherever they are. Wherever they are. Persecution emboldens the church, and then it magnifies Christ. Remember Paul said, I'm in prison, but I'm praising God because Christ will be magnified in me. And we noted how that suffering persecution 
perhaps more than anything else, enables us to magnify Christ. Because in the midst of that, we are able to declare to the world, I follow Jesus not for the benefits I receive from Him, but for His own sake. You may take from me all my wealth. You may take from me all my health. You may strip me naked and throw me into a cold cell in a North Korean labor camp, but I will continue to worship Jesus because I never worshiped him for just the benefits. I never worshiped him just because he made my life happy, healthy, and made me prosperous. I worshiped him because he is worthy, and I see in the face of Christ the glory of God. And I love him, and I adore him, and I will continue to serve him. And it affords us an opportunity to declare our love for Jesus Christ to a lost world. If you really love somebody, you love to be able to declare your love. You long to be able to to shout from the rooftops how much I love this person. And oh, how much you must love Christ who died for you, who shed His blood for you. Christian who gave His life, who God God became a man for you. And how we, we long to be able to tell the world, I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. And there are very few things that say I love Jesus than a believer who is suffering and still worshiping. And then finally, and fifth, it causes us to treasure Christ more. You see, it's just evident in Paul's language. As he's in prison, it's, he explodes towards the end of the first chapter with just praise about Christ. Whether I die, it's better because I'll get to be with Christ. And to be with Christ is far better. And you can see in the midst of that, And you can read throughout the book of Philippians, chapter 3 especially. I count all things but dung for Christ's sake. You can see how this this persecution has caused Paul to treasure Christ more as he's in the midst of this. And things have been stripped from him. He is now treasuring Christ even more than he did before. Blessed are they which are persecuted. Think of a diamond. A diamond is a beautiful thing. But when you set that diamond up against the black backdrop of a black velvet um, piece that you put behind it it shines ever the more and when you see Christ in the midst of persecution he shines ever the more and you treasure him more and more and this is why persecution is a blessing and just to close one time um, we had to go to the university uh, uh, excuse me the um, children's hospital of Charleston and we had to bring Lydia there for some treatments. And when I was there in the hospital, I was surrounded with suffering kids. You know, people that were children that were seriously suffering. You might see a young person with not much hair. You know, things like that. You, you know that they're really hurting. And because things were exhausting being in the hospital, sometimes we would go drive and take a drive down by the beach area in Charleston. And I'll never forget that one time when things were so uh, intense and you could see such suffering everywhere that it was like as we were driving down to the beach all the yacht houses (laughs) all all of the money that people had spent in these big mansions by the beach and all the stuff that they had it, it just all of a sudden everything became so clear 
that kind of clarity hasn't been there in many other times in life. But at that moment, there's such clarity. This is all vanity. This is just a total waste. Because in the midst of suffering, you see things more clearly. Your perspective is sharpened. And the one thing I, I can say, walking away from that was, a conviction of the supreme value of Jesus Christ. Supreme value of Christ. And that is something persecution will do, and it will do for His church. So if it comes, blessed are they which are persecuted for my sake. I pray that God will bless us to our hearts today. Let's seek the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bless Thee Oh God, we think of how the early church rejoiced that they are counted worthy to suffer for His sake. Oh Lord. Oh Father, keep us from running from suffering. Lord, it hurts and it's difficult, but Father, we know that Thou art a good Father and the gift that has been purchased for us wrapped with the loving hands of Christ. Oh Lord, that suffering that is tailored just for us by Christ himself given to us as a gift we trust that it is good Father help thy people and bless them every one of them for Jesus sake Lord please meet with us tonight for Christ's sake Amen